Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. This episode ends our week of season one finale coverage, just as it ends the year of 2021, uh, with all the good and bad that came with it. 2022 is going to be very interesting. A lot of big projects I want to at least initiate in this year. Uh, my original plan was to initiate and complete them in 2022. Um, maybe behind the scenes, but in terms of when they're published, some of these will definitely stretch out into 2023, uh, including this podcast. So let's talk about that for a moment before we uh, transition to a preview for next time. I'll talk about that more at the end of this episode, but basically uh, in there's going to be another breather, this one a little longer before we resume. And I'm not sure yet if we'll resume with season two or probably more likely jump ahead to Firewalk with me so that I can hit the anniversary of that in May. And again, we'll talk about that at the end of this episode. So let's move on to talk about the reception of this episode, particularly at the time in the media, from fans, on the Usenet board, on the Doug Puff forum years later, but also my own personal reception of it, and the things that I've written about this episode in the past. Uh, this being, you know, a pretty important episode that isn't a David Lynch episode, I think provides an interesting subject for contemplation. So I'll talk about that. And then at the end, I have my shape of the show section where I don't have any particular spoilers, but, um, or any spoilers at all, because it's all either uh, just talking about the kind of the general trajectory of the show, how people perceive the second season in particular, since now we're ending the first one without giving away any plot details. And then also talking about um, the speculation that fans had at the time. So I just found some interesting like predictions and observations and, you know, I read them here. So don't take anything from them in terms of like, oh, is this person actually predicting like the killer or a plot turn at a certain point. These are just things people thought back when they didn't know either. So they're interesting to look back on now and sample, but we'll get to that point at the end. If you don't even want to know, um, you know, if you don't even want to have other people's thoughts in your head, basically about what might happen or want to know like what people consider the ups and downs of the shows, you can tune out before that shape of the show warning. And also, uh, when when that's concluded, there will be one little spoiler, which is the first minute of the season two premiere. Uh, but there'll be pl ample warning before that. So you can tune out if, if you're watching the show for the first time, or you can keep listening if you want a little, again, a little taste of how that first minute's going to sound. And then that can launch you right into watching season two if you want. Although my coverage of that, um, if you're listening to this as it's released, will be at least somewhat, maybe quite a lot, delayed. So you're probably just going to want to continue on to season two without me in that case and come back and listen to the coverage when it when it comes out. But uh, if you're catching up with this later and the whole series is out there, you can jump right into season two and then come back to my coverage. So all depends when you're listening. But first, let's talk about the media reception for Twin Peaks season's finale. This was quite a significant week for the world of Twin Peaks. With the finale imminent, magazines and TV shows couldn't stop talking about the series. ABC had just announced a second season, and as if swept up in the zeitgeist, the Cannes Film Festival awarded Wild at Heart, which premiered there, the Palme d'Or, placing David Lynch at the forefront of the film world. I mentioned last time that I'd be covering Primetime Live again, even though it was no longer the lead-out show for Twin Peaks, and here's why. The next night, Thursday, May 24th, the, noon the news magazine did a whole comical section on Twin Peaks. 
Here's a few excerpts you may enjoy. I think the butler did it. The tension was so thick, you could hear the jelly dripping out of the donut. And then... It's kind of a bummer that he got shot. But the biggest bummer, they still never told us who done it. I'm angry. I feel, I feel used. I feel like we've been kind of gypped. I mean, here we were going through all these weeks hanging on for this, you know, and, and, and they don't tell you anything. Are you quite finished? Now, it may seem unfair, but Twin Peaks didn't become a pop phenomenon by following the rules. This must be where pies go when they die. Diane, Sam, you'll have to try some if you ever get up this way. Now make a note of this. Twin Peaks has definitely brought something different to television. For example, it taught us that it can be intriguing and even eerie to focus on inanimate objects that have absolutely nothing to do with anything. You won't see that on Doogie Howser. And now I'd like to read some pieces written over the following summer, as ABC re-aired the series and prepared merchandise to coincide with the fall premiere, including a spin-off book called The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, written by David Lynch's daughter, and an audio collection of tapes to Diane. Many viewers were already frustrated with the series for refusing to answer who killed Laura Palmer. If you notice from the coverage I shared around episode 6, there was a widespread expectation that the mystery would be firmly resolved with the season. Instead, viewers were not only left to wonder if the killer might be Leo Johnson, but also whether or not Cooper would survive into the next episode. The climax built not only anticipation, but exasperation. Here's how the press covered Twin Peaks in the months after that cliffhanger, and before its resumption. First up, article called Esquire Shoots Laura Palmer for Cover. This is the Orlando Sentinel. It's from July 16, 1990. Let there be no more speculation about who is going to grace the cover of Esquire magazine for its annual Women We Love issue. Television's most famous corpse, Laura Palmer, a.k.a. Cheryl Lee, is the woman who will be smiling from the newsstands. Esquire is marking the issue with a donation to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. From the Rolling Stone interview with David Lynch conducted by David Breskin, we have some very fascinating exchanges. Of course, as with most of these media uh, excerpts, these are just sort of selected quotes, so I'll try to link that full interview below. I think it's available online, and uh, it's worth reading in full. This is from September 6, 1990. The interviewer asks, During Blue Velvet, when you were filming the scenes of Frank abusing and raping Dorothy, apparently you were beside yourself with laughter. You thought this was funny on some level? And Lynch responds, I'm sure pretty nearly every psychiatrist could tell me right now why I was laughing, but I don't know. It was hysterically funny to me. Frank was completely obsessed. He was like a dog in a chocolate store. He could not help himself. He was completely into it. But because I was laughing and I am a human being, there must be some logical reason why. It has something to do with the fact that it was so horrible and so frightening and so intense and violent that there was also this layer of humor. It has to do with the degree of obsession where people cannot help themselves. The interviewer continues uh, with some questions about uh, art and its messages and so forth. And Lynch responds, I see films more and more separate from whatever kind of reality there is anywhere else. 
and that they are more like fairy tales or dreams. They are not, to me, political or like any kind of commentary or any kind of teaching device. They're just things, but they should obey certain rules. The interviewer asks, what I'm wondering is whether outside of your films you see the world as having these very strong dichotomies between good and evil as opposed to a kind of complex, integrated, and Lynch interrupts, says, no, I, I know it's complex. Everybody's got many threads of both running through them. But I think in a film, white gets a little whiter and black gets a little bit blacker for the sake of the story. That's part of the beauty of it, that contrast, the power of it. Maybe it would be very beautiful to have a character that had an equal mixture of both, where the forces were fighting equally, but maybe they would just stand still. The interviewer asks, well, let's talk about these women. Both Dorothy and Laura Palmer have the, quote, disease. Laura gets off on a man almost killing her because it makes sex great. What's the disease to you? Could you be more upfront about it? And Lynch says, um, no. The interviewer responds, come on, David. And he says, no, because just the word disease used in that way, it's so beautiful just to leave it abstract. Once it becomes specific, it's no longer true to a lot of people. Where if it's abstract, there could be some truth to it for everybody. The interviewer continues, but come on, we know there's a kind of masochism at work. And Lynch says, but even that can be so complicated that even to start talking about it wouldn't do it justice. The interviewer says, now there's an Oedipal thing happening in your films. You either have a kind of mystical reunion for the, with the lost mother. Lynch says, well, that's the Elephant Man. That's specific to that story. What other films? The interviewer says, or you have in Blue Velvet and elsewhere a kind of sex with mom thing going on. And Lynch says, how's that? The interviewer says, Frank is an infant, calls Dorothy mummy, and says at one point, baby wants to fuck. And Lynch responds, he's either daddy or he's baby. The interviewer says, one of the confusions seems to be over whether art has to mean anything. Let me quote you. I don't know why people expect art to make sense when they accept the fact that life doesn't make sense. First off, I don't think people accept the fact that life doesn't make sense. I think it makes people terribly uncomfortable. It seems like religion and myth were invented against that, trying to make some sense out of it. Don't you think that's where art come from, comes from, too? And Lynch says, maybe some of it does, but for me, I'm of the Western Union school. If you want to send a message, go to Western Union. It's even a problem of responsibility. You have to be free to think things up. The interviewer says, there's a sense of Twin Peaks uh, of a lack of respect for certain characters. There's a thin line between laughing at a character and making fun of them. And Lynch pops in and says, who are we making fun of? The interviewer responds, maybe Nadine with her eye patch, or Leland in his grief, or Johnny in the headdress, banging his head up against the dollhouse. These are things I found spectacularly funny, but there's some part of me that isn't comfortable with my own laughter in some cases. And Lynch says, at the same time, there can be a lot of compassion underneath that laugh. And yet it's the way the world is. It's so screwy. We're all kind of in it together, and there's got to be some room for a realistic attitude toward things. And then the final Lynch anecdote from that uh, interview that I included was he says, I had an idea for a show. I wanted to call it, I'll test my log with every branch of knowledge. And I wanted her to be a woman who lived with a son or a daughter, single, because her husband was killed in a fire. She takes the log to various experts in various fields of science or whatever. Like if she goes to the dentist, the log would get put in the chair with a little bib on it. The dentist would x-ray the log even to find out where its teeth were. So through the log, through this kind of absurdity, you would learn you'd be gaining so much knowledge through the show. And actually, uh, I lied. There is one more very brief exchange. The interviewer says, you said Blue Velvet was a moral picture. And Lynch says, I did. And he says, yes, you said that Jeffrey learns about the world and helps Dorothy in the process. 
There's an article called Lynch Takes Bigger Role in Twin Peaks Episodes, published in the Orlando Sentinel on September 7th, 1990. And of course, this is all part of the big push towards the season two premiere at the end of the episode. Um, I'm sharing it here partly because it was published before that episode and also because there's a whole lot of articles uh, published in this month that uh, many of them I'm going to share, I'm going to split and share uh, in the season two premiere episode. So in this one, I just included one little quote. It's uh, Richard Boehmer, the actor who plays Ben Horn, and he says, a lot of questions will be answered in the first show this season. We will, However, we will open up a whole new Pandora's box. Another article by Deborah Hastings is called Book Probes Mind of Laura Palmer. This was for the Associated Press on September 16, 1990. While the TV series alluded to Laura's darker side, permeated by sex, violence, and drugs, there is nothing equivocal in her diary. If it were made into a movie, The Secret Life of Laura Palmer would carry an X rating. But sex, drugs, and murder clues aside, the book also manages to capture the mindset of a teenage girl caught in the netherworld of puberty. This is about some of the dreams, hopes, and fears of any young girl's life, says Jennifer Lynch. We've all been there. We've all been 12. I have quite a few more excerpts I want to include, but I'm saving them for the shape of the show section near the end because they talk well, about the shape of the show. They talk about what Frost and Lynch kind of had in mind for how they wanted to approach the mystery. Nothing plot spoilery, of course, because they wouldn't have shared that in the press at the time, but just about generally where they're heading. And I know some people like to not know too much about that. And I think there's also some speculation. Yeah, there's definitely, there's actually some really interesting speculation from best-selling mystery paperback authors about who they think the, the killer was, and they have all these different ideas. So again, just people watching it at the time with their guesses, but... I save it for the end of the program in case new viewers want to be uh, just just deal with what's on screen. Uh, as for fans, uh, as suggested, fan reaction, you know, in my previous comment, fan reaction to the finale at the time was somewhat mixed. From what I've seen, I wouldn't call it a backlash per se, but some people were becoming impatient. There's also a sentiment expressed at times, probably more so today than, than back then, uh, that the finale is too rushed, action-packed, and over-the-top, that has drifted a bit too far from the dreaminess and moody sadness that was Twin Peaks' trademark. For the most part, though, fans seem to find it an appropriately exciting conclusion to a landmark season of television. So here are some of the comments that were left at the time by fans on the Usenet board, alt.tv.twinpeaks, in the spring of 1990. For those few who had internet access, many were avid Peaks fans, and here's what they had to say. Chris and Vicky of Kansas City on May 24, 1990 wrote, I'm seriously in need of a new David Lynch film. It's close and getting closer, but I want to be actually walking into the theater, sitting down, tensing up as the lights go off, and the previews are over, and the opening music starts, and the titles flash, fade, float by, and uh, we just had a nine-hour Twin Peaks marathon, watching everything on a 10-foot screen leading up to the final episode of the show. We finished the first eight hours with 20 minutes to spare before the finale. After it was all over with, I put on Julie Cruz and turned the channel to the Discovery Channel, where they were showing some nature films about elks, and there were lots of antlers and trees and brooks flowing and tall grass blowing, and Julie was singing, falling, falling, and it was the most wonderful thing in the universe, and I really, really need a new David Lynch film. Where's that copy of Eraserhead? And are there any video stores open so we can rent Blue Velvet and we can start again and do the whole Twin Peaks thing again? Yes, now, why not? I, I don't care. Work? What's that? Oh, the thing you do to get get paid so you can take care of silly little things like rent and food, but they won't fire me and I'm quitting anyways and I want more David Lynch. As Leo, quote, I used to be a jerk, but now I'm a dead jerk, Johnson would say, now. Get a grip, Vicky. Counting the seconds till September. Vicky, one of Vicky and Chris. P.S. 
I never did get completely caught up with the alt.tv.twin peaks, but still you people have given me a wealth of insight and thoughts about the whole thing. You are all truly amazing. I salute you. Rich Rosen wrote on May 27th, 1990, well, first they quoted another user named Michael McDaniel who said, I just figured they wanted to save time and get onto the stuff we hadn't heard. I may be wrong, but I think a lot of people have a tendency to overanalyze things. There doesn't have to be a covert meaning to everything that doesn't jibe with your version of reality. And Rich responds, that's what I've grown to really like. Read the word like with as much drooling, snarling sarcasm as you can muster up about Twin Peaks. Here we have a very significant difference between the way Jacoby originally heard the tape and the way the supposedly same tape sounds when played back later by other people who have purloined it. Is this really significant? Will it actually ever matter to the course of the plot? Of course not! It's a gaffe, a kludge, a fuck-up, a stupid ineptoid clutched up mucking about by people who don't really care whether they insert inconsistencies into the plot line that prompt anyone using their brain who might be watching and expecting that a thinking person's program is being developed here to say, hmm, save your breath. Air is a precious resource. Don't bother. This is not a thinking person's show. This is a soap opera concocted by people who think they're parodying or redefining the boundaries and limits of soap opera by inserting clever little allusions to movies they like and by utilizing quirky characters and new age detective methodologies and by inserting people watching a soap opera within the soap opera itself. Is this genuinely original? As if to say, look at this interesting plot element. The characters in this soap opera are themselves hooked on a TV soap opera. Isn't that funny? I mean, imagine people totally obsessed by a silly television pro- Oh, hi there, audience. How's it going? But a soap opera nonetheless, and none the more. Someone claimed that the people who dealt us this mess surely wouldn't jerk around millions of people with stupid leftover cliched soap opera tricks, or with poor plotting that leaves one thinking about how Indiana Jones's line and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, I don't know, I'm making this up as I go along, was actually reflective of what was going on in the minds of that film's creators, too. I do not see why making up a film about a baby that looks like a sheep, and probably was a sheep, gives one a degree of infallibility and integrity, comparable to a cross between the Pope and Mother Teresa. He and his little cronies are fucking with our minds, no less than other slimy network and other media yoo-hoos. We come into this expecting, or at least hoping for, a sophisticated program that would give people who say, oh, I never watch network TV, to come back into the fold like good little sheep and watch. The early episodes hinted at the fulfillment of that promise, but in reality, it was never a promise at all. It was a scam. Watching this show, the level of sophistication and interpretation and observation that the show leads you to think it deserves is actually detrimental to the appreciation of the program. Thinking is not a survival trait when it comes to watching Twin Peaks. It is just the opposite. It is an anti-survival trait. It leads to you contemplating the meaning of a log when a huge bear or wolf or tractor trailer comes along and slimes you to pieces because you should have been using your log-given senses to fend for your survival out in the wild instead of thinking about whether or not there were two Lydeckers or whether or not that stuffed toy duck sitting at the edge of the table in the scene where Maddie doesn't chuck your cherry coke at the diner has any significance or whether the very fact that Maddie doesn't chuck her cherry coke is in and of itself significant. It doesn't matter, really, honestly. This show is best appreciated by not bothering to think about anything, by just watching it just like it was a common garden variety soap opera. 
for good reason. It is a common garden variety soap opera, albeit a common garden variety soap opera with a log lady, a zen detective, kinky sex, in and out of the wazoo, hinted at and brazenly bared for all to see, at least as much as one can on TV, and a general quirkiness and atmosphere that leads us, the people who never watch network TV, and especially not those silly soap operas, to think this is more than a common garden variety soap opera. If the show is a parody, the thing being parodied is the audience, you and me, the people who look with disdain on shows like Dallas, Dynasty, and Wheel of Fortune because we have been shown to be better than those who are hopelessly addicted to those programs. We have been sucked in, toyed with, fucked with, and I, for one, have had enough. I'm going cold turkey off this ridiculous bit now. I mean, this show has messed up my life completely, controlling my schedule, my lifestyle, my conversation. Look at me right now here in this news group. I have never spent so much time slavishly reading and posting to the net in my entire life. Well, maybe once for about four years, but that doesn't count. So I've had it. In the words of Bobby's friend Mike, who isn't one-armed Mike, who isn't the one-armed man from The Fugitive, who isn't the killer, who isn't really important anyway, I'm out of here. Maybe if enough of us who feel the same way, and apparently there are more than a few of us, make our feelings known, we can show the network that we're mad as hell about this, and we're not going to take it anymore. Oh my god, another movie reference. Maybe they'll realize that they can't mess with our minds the way that way indefinitely. Maybe they'll realize that these whimsified artists who think they can fool us into believing that they've made something serious and interesting here can't get over on the American public ad infinitum. Maybe they'll realize that I, the very audience that they had tried to sucker in, is now wise to them and isn't going to bother watching their silly program next fall. And, and, and maybe once they realize that, when they rebroadcast the entire series over the summer, they'll use the version of the last episode that was intended to be used if the series was not going to be renewed for the fall, the one that reveals who actually killed Laura Palmer. Yeah, I mean, like I really give a hoot. Courtesy Dyson on June 14th, 1990, wrote... Laura Palmer is still dead. My opinion is that the murder mystery motivates my watching Twin Peaks. Many on the net share this opinion because the primary activity on alt.tv.twin peaks is shift sifting clues and articulating who killed Laura theories. To fail to provide a clean resolution of the murder mystery that fits the clues to a T would be a very callous way for Lynch to treat his detective minded audience. An arbitrary solution would mean the complete failure of Twin Peaks as a mystery. Sorry if I don't see the joke in that. As you pointed out, there seems to be no way for everything to fit together, but we'll see what turns out next fall. My opinion is that Twin Peaks was neither new nor outstanding TV. It was MTV, Images and Music, meets Dynasty, a sappy melodramatic plot with a dash of The Twilight Zone, contrived story and character twists. It was a tribute to the 80s, a decade dedicated to style over substance. The most fitting epitaph to Twin Peaks would be, where's the beef? In 2014, on the Dugpa uh, fan forum, I posted uh, sort of prompts about different turning points, big big moments in Twin Peaks, to see how fans responded, uh, particularly fans watching at the time, but other later fans as well. And here were the responses I got to two aspects of Episode 7. The first was the fact that Laura's killer was not revealed. Ross said, I wasn't mad at all about the killer not being revealed, but I was surprised. I honestly thought they would be. Not sure exactly where that expectation came from, but it was there. And a lot of people were pissed. It was really the first turning point against the show. Hooded Matt says, It didn't bother me at all that Lara's killer wasn't revealed. i become so caught up in all the various plots and the fact that they all seem to be playing into the main one at this point that it didn't matter. Bob One said, I think it was becoming more and more obvious that the deeper we sink into the mystery, the more mysterious it gets. So I probably didn't expect revealing the killer. And Chalfon agrees, 
Don't think I expected that the killer would be revealed. And Gabrielle says, never expected him or her to be. YG Drazel says, I never expected the killer to be revealed, so it wasn't an issue. I got super hyped by all the cliffhangers, though. And then the other turning point I asked about was Cooper being shot. Ross responded, There was a bit on the finale on some entertainment show, most likely E.T., where they were showing people's negative reactions to the ending. I loved all the cliffhangers. I was pretty convinced that at least some of the characters would die. Chalfont's response was, Oh no! Gabrielle's response was, Someone had been watching Dallas. To be honest, it was actually a little too grand guignol for me. And of course, the reference to Dallas, which I haven't even mentioned yet, is uh, there was a huge cliffhanger in, I think, 1980 or 81, where the season finale was one of the most popular characters getting shot. Who shot JR became one of the big events in TV history. In fact, the whole Simpsons, uh, who shot Mr. Burns, was based explicitly on that. And uh, so, yeah, so Frost's obviously thinking about that when he wrote the ending of uh, the Twin Peaks finale. And here's how I responded to my own question about the turning points, or in the first case, uh, the, the not finding out Lars Killer, a non-turning point. I'm pretty sure that when I started watching Twin Peaks, I did not expect the killer to be revealed at all, and I was fine with that. In fact, I was under the impression that Twin Peaks had been canceled because Lynch declined to solve the mystery, and that made sense to me. I felt the point of the show was that yearning to know the unknowable, and that this fueled the entire mood and atmosphere of the world. On DVD, Cooper being shot certainly was not as big as of deal as it would have been in the spring of 1990, uh, but I'm sure I rushed to return the disc in order to get the next one quickly. I don't remember any real impression of Cooper's cliffhanger, but I do know that I love Frost's direction of the episode and considered it the best non-Lynch episode of season one. I think episode 7 plays best on first viewing, when we are totally hooked on the various plots and want to know where it is going. At this point, I believed all roads lead to Rome, and that everything related somehow to Lara's mystery. I thought, even if the final answer is never revealed, various clues will keep tying everything in together and indicate some even larger mystery. So, to add to that final point from today, I would say on my first revisit, uh, the episode was a little more disappointing to me. With the narrative suspense removed, it seemed too heavy on plot and not enough on atmosphere. But now at this point, I love it as much for the way it is a somewhat skewed out of sync episode. The Twin Peaks filtered through a seemingly different type of TV show. Except that Twin Peaks is actually capable of being so many different types of TV shows that this is... It adds another level to the aberration. I appreciate how far the series can travel from pole to pole, how much it can contain. How did we get here from the pilot? And where will we go next? And now for some readings and clips from non-spoiler pieces. I'm going to read a longer than usual excerpt of the 2008 episode guide here. This episode justifies my conception to do a primarily formal analysis of the series, investigating what each director and writer brought to the show, and how each episode differed from the last. Lynch and Frost established a tone with the premiere, and within the parameters they set, different writers and directors brought different qualities to the forefront. One week we could get an emphasis on the surreal, otherworldly elements of the story in Lacal. On another, a quieter focus on the characters, while yet another might choose to go the clever snappy route. But always they were playing off two poles, Lynch on the one hand, Frost on the other. Though Frost has described his cliffhanger approach with a wink and a smile in interviews, suggesting that it was a send-up of soap operas, there's little in the material itself to suggest intentional camp. Indeed, this is one of the less self-aware episodes of the season, and it tends to take the investigative and melodramatic elements at face value. If this is satire, it's quite deadpan. Also completely absent is any sense of mysticism or the uncanny. Frost references appear to be film noir, TV soaps, and cop shows. 
He tweaks these conventions, but does not seek to combine them with anything supernatural or postmodern or dreamlike. To put it succinctly, where Lynch and Frost most differ in their approach to Twin Peaks is that Lynch goes for surreal, while Frost goes for offbeat. Though he's very focused on pulling all of these plot strands together, Frost also takes his time with the characters, trying to explore and flesh out their relationships amidst all the hustle and bustle. This is effective with Catherine and Pete, who always seemed a disastrous couple, but as Catherine pleads with Jack Pete to help her, we see their romantic roots. She recalls Pete as the lumberjack who could scamper up a tree like a cat, and picturing Jack Nance doing just that will bring an amused smile to your face. Less effective is Leo's rage at Shelley's betrayal. He's just too one-note to pull it off. I mean, if you hit your wife in the face with soap on a good day, you really can't be that surprised when she shoots you. More successfully ambiguous is Hank, who does wonders mixing baleful facial expressions with a sinister subtext. Probably the best benchmark of the directors is how they bring Cooper, or rather Kyle MacLachlan, out of his shell. Several very good directors just couldn't nail his character, and he appeared drab and depressed around the middle of the season. I noted that he made a comeback with the episode directed by Leslie Linka Glatter, but it may have been Frost's script that did the trick as much as Glatter's direction. Entirely in Frost's hands here, Agent Cooper is cool, calm, and confident once again. Lynch and Frost have slightly different conceptions of Cooper, who comes off as ever so slightly unhinged in Lynch's hands. Frost, on the other hand, presents him as the consummate professional, and it's a delight to watch him reel in the fat trout that is Jacques Renault. As Jacques, Walter Okowitz gives one of the juiciest performances in the series. Two other touchstones are Andy and Bobby. Bobby doesn't have as much to do in this episode, so we don't get to see what approach Frost takes to his occasionally out-of-control character. But Andy, who veers from Gomer Pyle to downbeat, slightly melancholy slowpoke, gets the latter treatment here, which I prefer. Lynch tends to accentuate the dumbbell goofball aspects of his character, whereas this and the previous episode leave Andy a few steps behind his peers, but in a fashion that's almost winningly sad. Less fortunate is Laura Palmer, heard on tape delivering some of the worst lines of the series, telling Dr. Jacoby that if he knew the identity of her mystery man, then he'd be history man, and that said mystery man really lights my F-I-R-E. In 2014, I created my video series Journey Through Twin Peaks, and I put episode 7 with episodes 4 through 6 as like the second half of season 1, which I found really distinct and exciting in its own manner, and I talk about that a little in this clip. Frost wrote two of these four episodes and directed the season finale, the only time a single person served as writer and director. The screws tighten, the characters draw closer together, and the narrative rolls forward like a well-oiled machine. This is Twin Peaks at its most efficient and addictive. Most importantly, every character feels interrelated, and all subplots, even the comical ones, are charged with suspense. I don't know why she's doing what she's doing. Even as other intrigues crowd around it, the lore mystery remains at the core of all the narrative action. By now there are at least three, maybe more, ongoing investigations into Laura's death. My own personal investigation, I suspect, will be ongoing for the rest of my life. I have uh, two appearances on Twin Peaks Unwrapped, one discussing uh, the episodes of, of that season. First up, Twin Peaks Unwrapped, discussing season one in 2015. I, and you did a great job um, then talking about this on, I think it was episode three, how Frost will come in and he'll take these things that Lynch came up with mm. just for like, you know, hey, wouldn't it be cool if a bird was flying? And wouldn't it be cool if she said, I'm, I, this is my cousin? Right. Frost was like, okay, well, 
well, I'm going to write an episode. We've got to write this episode by episode. We're going to bring in a cousin. We're going to bring in a bird. You're going to see red curtains in Jacques's cabin. For Tumblr, I ranked the episodes in 2015. And I've been saving those rankings for the shape of the show section for first-time viewers. But I realized I can actually tell you how I rank it uh, in relation to what you've already seen. So that way I'm not even giving a hint as to how I view it in the longer context of the show. Out of the eight episodes I've seen so far, according to this ranking, it would be number six. So kind of on the lower end, but I like all of season one so much, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Here's the essay I wrote at the time. There isn't the slightest flicker of interest in the supernatural. The pace chugs along at a clip far removed from the pilot's emphatic deliberation. And while there are some offbeat flourishes, the incongruous Hawaiian mural in the opening shot, Jacoby's eyeball dissolving into a roulette wheel, Leland's silent scream, Josie rubbing her lips with her bloody finger, you would probably never identify Twin Peaks as a surrealist show if this was the only episode you tuned in for. Instead, it appears to be a relatively straightforward police procedural soap opera, with some eccentric characters and a mildly Baroque shooting style, set in a vaguely rural backdrop. Although, come to think of it, we never see the woods once, unless you count the palm tree in Jacoby's office. The most distinctive location in the finale is actually quite urban, a huge processing plant where the cops chat about their relationship troubles before debusting a drug-dealing pimp. We might as well be watching Hill Street Blues. All of that sounds fairly critical, but I like Hill Street Blues, and I suppose this partly accounts for this episode coming in lower than some of the others, despite its importance. Episode 7 leans very heavily on narrative at the expense of atmosphere. True. But this is a very gripping narrative. So since we're at the end of Season 1, let me just lay out my ranking for Season 1 according to this that I made. Maybe if I tried to do it now, it would be a little different. But this is how I looked at it in 2015. And we'll go from least favorite to favorite. Uh, number 8 would be Episode 1. That's the first main episode where... Uh, Cooper is, you know, talking about damn fine coffee and going around. We see Bob pop up behind the couch for the first time. Number seven is episode three, the Laura's funeral episode. Number six is this episode, episode seven, the season finale. Number five is episode four, where they go to the Lidecker's clinic and they see the llama and they meet with the one-armed man and all that. Number four is episode five, where they go out into the woods and they see the log lady's cabin and Jock's cabin. Number three is episode six, the previous episode, with all the great Audrey scenes, the cherry stem, and, uh, you know, her hiding in the closet and spying and all of that. Number two would be the pilot. That's my second favorite episode. Obviously establishes things, gets off to a great start, but... Number one for me is episode two, the Lynch episode with the Red Room uh, and the throwing the, the rocks at the bottle and Audrey dancing in the diner and just all of those, uh, Jerry and Ben and the bread. There's just so many great scenes in that. That was the episode that made me fall in love with Twin Peaks. So that's my favorite episode of season one and favorite of the show so far. Moving on with the uh, excerpts. In 2016, for a Reddit comment that became my first time viewer's diary, I wrote, yes, this limitation is also a strength. Over the previous seven episodes, we've come to know and care about these characters, and this episode thrives on that knowledge. While there's more action and high-pitched drama here, there's also a lot of dialogue. We get real glimpses into the relationships of Hank and Norma and, my favorite, Pete and Catherine, and also into Laura. Characters are challenged and forced to show their true colors. Some grow, Andy, maybe Catherine. Some are overcome, Leo, Jacoby. And some face challenges we won't see resolved until the new season begins, Cooper and Audrey. The episode is best seen through the lens of Mark Frost. For him, Twin Peaks was never just about a single murder mystery, but about the complex interrelationships of a fully drawn community. As he described it, a Dickensian tapestry that uses a small lumber town as its backdrop. I'm going to save a paragraph of this for the Shape of the Show section uh, as a transition into season two 
and a very general non-spoiler sense of how I view it in relation to season one. But we'll hold off on it for now because it does talk about the structure and, you know, season two coming up. Here's my segment on season one for my Patreon podcast in 2018. And that, I think, puts it really in common with the shorter seasons of Prestige TV you see today. I just finished the first season of Mad Men, and that has a very similar feel where there's just this kind of energy to it that's sustained for a relatively short run of episodes. And you have elements leading from one episode to the next. Each one kind of has its own character and story arc, um, but it uh, also, and, you know, different directors working on it, but it has this kind of house style and it has this, this freshness to it. And so Twin Peaks season one is really all about that. You know, that's, that's what, that's what characterizes it. Twin Peaks unwrapped season two madness, where we did a March madness, uh, ranking of the episodes in season one. And this madness ranking was uh, done in 2019. All right. We're going to Joel Baco. So episode seven versus episode four. Episode seven, you've got Mark Frost directing, and I think it's really interesting. It's almost like a Hill Street Blues episode. There's no supernatural, heavy on like the crime stuff and the town melodrama, not very woodsy. It's an interesting take on Twin Peaks, but I think episode four, in a way, feels more Peaksian to me. And finally, there was a community rewatch of episode seven, on a Twin Peaks Unwrapped in 2019 with the hosts of Bickering Peaks, another Twin Peaks podcast. We talked a lot about Mark Frost. So it can be sort of hard to tease out a style, like a visual style, but in mm. terms of like his values and his story interests, what do you see in this episode that ties into some of his non-Twin Peaks work or even maybe the secret history and final dossier? One thing that came up for me, um, there seems to be related to the Twin Peaks, uh, especially the secret history of Twin Peaks and um, the final dossier, there's a lot of emphasis on kind of the backstories of some of these characters, especially with mm. Catherine and Pete. There mm. was this this nice little teasing out like the history of their romance. And that was something that, this is the first time I've seen this episode since um, finishing up the return. So I'd forgotten about that scene when they're in the mill and they're talking about when they met. And that mm. felt to me very much yeah. like, like his interest is in going back and, and figuring out where these characters came mm. from. Now, before we get to shape of the show or uh, the opening minute of season two, in case you're going to tune out here, I just want to announce what my plans are. What I can say for sure is fire walk with me will be, uh, I will be releasing those episodes in May. Those will be ready. They're pretty much already ready because of the format. I put them on on Patreon. So um, th those will be scheduled for then, probably season three after that, and maybe season two before and after those. Okay, and that's it for really the main section of this uh, podcast. We're going to now move into the shape of the show. And there's a lot to discuss here, a lot of media excerpts, some fan comments, all of which either talk about their speculation from the time about whether how Cooper would fare about who they thought the killer might be. Um, but also things that people are saying in the media, like Frost talking about their plans for how to deal with the mystery in the new season. So these are things that were open. They were public. Some of it was just purely speculative, but if all you want to focus on is the episode at hand, tune out now. And if not, stay tuned. Welcome to shape of the show. First of all, for my Tumblr rankings for the whole series this was ranked number 12 which means since it was number six for season one there's going to be six episodes of season two that i rank higher and uh, i wrote 
uh, in my review, uh, which I left out, I said, certainly this is one of the 10 most important and most eventful episodes of the series. And it also concludes my favorite stretch of the series, the second half of season one. Lynch didn't direct any of these. So my top six episodes aren't even from this section, but there's no other part that I enjoy as consistently. Here's a piece written for the Orlando Sentinel by Greg Dawson, published July 16th, 1990. It's called The Secret is Secure in Twin Peaks Crowd. And he writes, I moved on to the corpse in question, Cheryl Lee, who was dead Laura Palmer wrapped in plastic at the start of the show, and later her lookalike cousin Madeline. Who killed you, I asked. She seemed taken aback, so I asked if she agreed with ABC executives who have promised a solution to the murder in the first new episode of the fall. To a point, she said, employing what by now has become familiar twin speak. Lee was eager to clear up a couple of points. That's not my prom picture on the show, and I have never been a homecoming queen. Never. Richard Nixon never would have had to resign if he had been as deaf to Stonewaller as Mark Frost, executive producer of Twin Peaks. He played rope-a-dope with critics in a 45-minute press conference that continued the tease. Asked if he and Lynch would make good on ABC's promise of a Laura answer in the first new show, Frost said, Up to a point. You're going to find out something to satisfy that statement. You're going to find out some other things, too. Frost said it would be possible for viewers to solve the murder from existing clues. I think when they find out, they'll go, oh yeah, I hope. Ultimately, the only believable answer to the question came from ABC executive Daniel Burke. What would kill Laura Palmer, he said to critics, about an 11 or 12 share in the Nielsen's. That's a reality even Twin Peaks has to deal with. On August 12, 1990, in the Washington Post, Michael E. Hill published Breakfast at Twin Peaks, The Donuts Mark the Spot, and the Show. No, says Frost. We knew who the killer was from the very beginning, and we always planned to reveal it at a certain time. For all the critical acclaim, Twin Peaks has not been a success with the mass audience. When you hear the expression, cult favorite, you know a show is dying in the ratings. Indeed, the Peaks ratings generally slumped as the series went on last spring. The maddening circularity of almost everything associated with Peaks may already have driven the audience away, and relentless teasing may not bring them back. Frost I was kind of amazed by the way that people responded to Laura Palmer. I can't remember a dead character ever getting that kind of response before, over this long period of time. Here's a really interesting piece. It's called Four Top Authors Solve the Twin Peaks Mystery, edited by Joanna M. Elm for TV Guide, September 8th to 14th, 1990. So these are mystery, best-selling mystery authors of the time, and their thoughts on who they thought the killer might be. So uh, the first one spoils the 1944 film Laura, so skip ahead a minute if you want to miss. There's two spoilers in there for that film if you care. Andrew M. Greeley says, I'd say the killer is the psychiatrist, Dr. Lawrence Jacoby, because he's most like Waldo, the Clifton Webb character who was the killer in the 1944 movie Laura. In Twin Peaks, Laura was driving Jacoby crazy. He was attracted both by her innocence and by her evil. One giveaway clue is the terrible look on his face when he sees Laura on the videotape. A similar clue is the look on Madeline's face when James, Hurley, and Donna play back the audio tape they stole from Jacoby's office, on which Laura is heard talking to the doctor. It makes me think that Madeline, Laura's cousin, is really Laura, and that, as in the movie, the killer murdered the wrong girl. Jackie Collins says, The killer is not going to be anyone obvious, so my choice is Andy, Sheriff Truman's deputy, because he appears to be the least likely. If they were going for the obvious, it would have to be Laura's father, Leland Palmer. He's such a whiner and so hysterical that you can see his guilt coming out. My second obvious suspect is Audrey Horn because she's always been jealous of Laura. Tony Hillerman says, 
I'm inclined to pick someone as unlikely as Laura's father, Leland Palmer, as her killer. Given the kind of girl we now know that Laura was, and what a neurotic guy Leland is, it's possible that he could have bumped her off in a rage after he found out she was working at One-Eyed Jack's. Frankly, I'm not sure the show's writers know who the killer is. By normal standards, the series is sloppy and inconsistent. Twin Peaks sets things up and then does nothing with them, like the reference to the letters R and J which Cooper digs out from under the fingernails of Lara and the previous murder victim whose death he had investigated before his arrival in Twin Peaks. And they seem to have forgotten the coma victim, Renette. Cooper is inconsistent too. One minute he's Sherlock Holmes, the next he's into dreams and throwing rocks at bottles. Iris Rayner Dart said, I'm a lousy person to ask because I always used to lose at Clue, but I like the idea that Madeline's the one who's dead and Lara was the one who killed her. Lara wanted to come back as Madeline so she could start afresh and escape her tainted past. There's a loophole, however. How could Laura go home and stand to see her parents so tormented over her murder? Donna Hayward could also be the killer because she's a character you'd least suspect. After all, she's in love with James, and there was that little speech she made to her mother when she was talking about Laura's murder. It's so horrible, but I feel so happy. Her entire family is so straight and wholesome that there's just got to be more to them. Laura's father, Leland, is also suspicious because he's so crazed now. It's possible he did it because he couldn't bear the thought of her sordid life. On the Alt.TV Usenet board, a guest user wrote on May 24th, 1990, Here's a theory based on what me and a few friends worked out. First, we think that Leland was having an incestuous affair with Laura. Second, we know that Laura had sex with three men the night she died, Leo Jacques and the third man, the killer. Third, Leland has been degenerating as the series progressed, kind of like in Macbeth. Fourth, Leland killed Jacques. Fifth, as a lawyer... Leland may well have known the details of Teresa Banks's murder the year before, even down to the letter under the fingernail. So, Leland was the third man to have sex with Laura the night of her death, and in fact was the one who killed her. He killed Jacques to eliminate one of the witnesses to the murder, and I'll bet he knew that Hank was going to get Leo. Leland's a lawyer, remember? Maybe he defended Hank in the first place before he went to jail. This theory wraps up a few loose ends. The letter under the fingernail... If we assume that Leland knew about Teresa Banks, we can guess that he planted the R under Laura's fingernail to make it appear that there was a connection. Same for all the ritualistic stuff surrounding the killing. Why did he do it? Several reasons. He was ashamed of what should become, he was afraid others might find out about her sordid secret life, and he might even be implicated himself in that sordid life as a lawyer, and maybe he wanted to set up Leo and Jacques to be rid of them, for whatever reasons. So, what do y'all think? On the Dugpa forum, in answers to my questions about the turning points, the user named Audrey Horn wrote, The killer is so obviously a good guy. The sheriff or Donna, maybe the father. Guys, quit complaining about not finding out who the killer is. The show has so much more going for it. Okay, Nadine and Leo are dead, right? Those characters have outlasted their usefulness. Ha, love Catherine telling the sweet but dumb waitress to shut up. She has a thing in her mouth. Those two will be fine. Go, Catherine, you're fantastic. Oh my god, Audrey, how are you going to get out of this one? Ah, uh, yes, she left a note for Cooper. Wait, no, Cooper, no! Okay, no way he's dead, no way. Truman or Donna shot him. I'm fine with not knowing and spending months thinking what is going to happen. This is the best show ever, Bob One writes. Cooper being shot was a blast, and let us, a group of fans at school, develop a range of theories, including Cooper's twin brother and such stuff. Hooded Matt said, I flip-flopped over who shot Cooper a lot, mainly between Leland, he was wearing a black coat too, and Ben. So, as for the uh, preview that they air at the end of each episode, there is no preview this week, and how could there be? The next episode hadn't even been shot yet, but moreover, it hadn't even been written. I imagine most of those cliffhangers they wrote didn't even have a planned resolution yet. 
So there's going to be a lot of work for the Twin Peaks crew going forward. For the Log Lady intro recorded in 1993 by David Lynch a few years after the show was over, he has the Log Lady talking about a drunken man walking in a way that is quite impossible for a sober man to imitate. And she compares this to an evil man who is, you know, can cannot keep their nature a secret. She says, life like music has a rhythm. And then she ends by saying three sharp sounds like deathly drum beats. I think another podcast, probably Sparkwood 21, mentioned the similarity to Dune, the idea of walking without rhythm, which is kind of funny. And I think it's interesting that the Log Ladies, her intro moves from obscurity to cl- to clarity. And in other episodes, we've seen the opposite. Like she starts off with something straightforward. We're like, okay, I know what she's talking about in relation to this episode. And then she gets kind of obscure and out there. And uh, in this case... She starts off with this strange allegory about a drunken man walking in a way, and then she ends with like, oh, and Cooper gets shot at the end, basically. (laughs) Three sharp sounds like deathly drum beats. So there's sort of a meta aspect to these intros. I imagine it's more a result of their openness and intuitiveness than a winking conscious design on Lynch's part, if such a distinction even makes sense. But it does almost feel like the season itself, starting in this sort of obscure, mysterious way and ending on a more sort of sharp, clear Uh, direction so the the intro itself is structured that way and here's the end of that uh first time viewer companion that i mentioned where i talk about season two and what i think about it and that's going to serve as a good sort of end to the shape of the show section and preparation for first time viewers to move into the new season with my next episode here's what i wrote you know what kogan the critic who said that the show probably shouldn't come back for a 22 episode season he wasn't all wrong The novelty of the tone does dissipate with continued exposure. The sense of all subplots revolving around a central hub of mystery does wear off. With more time to fill, the pacing, plotting, and sense of tension do go a bit slack at times. But something else happens, too. With more room to breathe and less certainty about where it's going, Twin Peaks will experiment and discover places, moods, and moments of stunning horror, humor, and sadness, and mystery, and beauty that it could only dream of in season one. I've always felt season two is underrated, less consistent but containing higher highs than the almost exclusively discussed season one. But I don't think I've ever looked forward to it as much as I am now on this rewatch. Get ready. We're about to head much deeper into the spirit of those dark woods. So here it is. Cooper's been shot at the end of season one. Where are we now at the beginning of season two? Let's race right into it. To set the mood, let's listen to the first minute of the episode before I describe what we see. As in the pilot, there is no commercial break between the opening credits and the opening scene, so it's hard to say exactly where one ends and the other begins. The season two premiere also uses the long version of the credits for the first time since the pilot, with the title Twin Peaks over log cutting saws rather than the town sign, and about halfway through, there's a transition into a dark shot of a river running at night with different, more ominous music playing. This feels like both a reset and a subversion. For our purposes, the episode proper begins immediately after the final credit, reading directed by David Lynch. Agent Cooper, can you hear me? It's Andy. Agent Cooper, it's Andy. Can you hear me? Agent Cooper. Room service. 
How are you doing down there? Warm milk. Agent Cooper. Would you put it on the table, please? And would you call a doctor? We're presented with a new establishing shot of the Great Northern. Eerie at night, with most of its windows dark, except for a couple on the second floor, which faintly glow orange. The entire sky behind the hotel and much of the cliff below are pitch black. We are deep into the night, the proverbial darkest before dawn moment. Offsetting the black and dashes of orange is a diffuse blue light which illuminates the mist covering the right side of the hotel, a thick patch of which billows just before we cut inside room 315, where Cooper lies on the floor. We are positioned in the left-hand corner of the room with a high angle and wide lens, allowing us to gaze down upon the full sweep of the scene. Cooper's door is open, revealing a patch of empty hallway and a closed door across the way. It does not seem like anyone heard the gunshot a few minutes earlier. Somehow Cooper landed a good 10 to 15 feet away from the door, lying on his back on the rug at the foot of his bed, staring at the ceiling. The phone receiver lies on a table near our corner, atop a white envelope and next to the agent's tape recorder. Also on the table is a carved and painted wooden duck, positioned as if swimming across the tabletop. Its small black eye provides a kind of third point between the doorway and the bed, with Cooper in the middle. At least four lights are on, a lamp on the dresser, a bedside lamp, the overhead chandelier with three lights, and a bathroom light. There also appears to be a light source near the window, and the hall light is on. After a few seconds of this, we cut to an elegantly arranged close-up, with the earpiece of the receiver, the tape recorder, and the soft-focus base of the phone forming three corners of a visual triangle. We can see Agent Cooper written in the envelope under the receiver. In a cut to a medium shot of Cooper lying on his back, eyes closed, we see that his body too forms a sort of triangle, his outstretched arms descending diagonally from his serene head. And on his midsection and lower torso, another triangle, two black smoky holes in his shirt near the top of his rib cage, and then a massive blood stain on the lower area of his right abdomen. The asymmetrical image almost looks like a distorted face, bloody clown mouth wide open, below two extinguished eyes, like a David Lynch painting scrawled across Cooper's tuxedo. And now we cut to a reverse shot, approximating Cooper's point of view, where he'd open his eyes. An old man, entirely bald on top, but with a white mustache, enters the room. He too wears a tuxedo, but with a prominent red and black bow tie across his collar, and a short red apron around his waist, mirroring the gorier black-white-red dynamic of Cooper. And echoing his white shirt is the glass of milk he carries on a tray before him as he shuffles slowly into the room, pausing just inside the doorway to announce himself. A tight close-up of Cooper reveals his reaction, a couple controlled murmurs and flutters of his barely opened eyelids, as if gathering strength to ask for help or the will to remain calm, despite the fact that this person does not seem particularly well equipped to help him. Returning to the medium-wide point of view, the man approaches, the camera panning slightly to the left and tilting up to keep him in frame, as the shot becomes a medium by the time he stops and leans forward, asking Cooper how he is doing. Again, the medium shot of Cooper on his back, moving his head slightly to minimize the pain, despite his calm, controlled demeanor, but seemingly not able to say much. In the reverse medium of the waiter, he leans back up to his full height to announce the item on his tray, and then forward again to await Cooper's reaction. 
In Cooper's medium, he gazes at the waiter and lightly raises what he can of his left arm, directing the milk and continuing, over the waiter's reverse medium, to ask for medical assistance. Thus ends our minute. But of course, there will be many, many more minutes before Cooper is able to get what he asked for. I'm going to be taking at least a couple months from this podcast. i got a lot of other stuff to work on. The earliest I would come back would be March 5th, I believe is the date. This is the first Saturday of March. And at that point, if I can make it at that point, I would be able to cover the first nine episodes of season two, which is a big arc on the show um, and gives us a good place to leave off um, in early May. Now, whether I do that or not, I will absolutely be uh, publishing on May 7th. So if I don't, if I can't create those episodes in a timely manner and I decide to just skip ahead, uh, the podcast will return on May 7th for two weeks of coverage on Firewalk with me, which might, with like, these won't be like eight, 15, 20 minute episodes. These will be like some of them an hour. Basically, I'm going to take what I recorded for Patreon because uh, it was already divided up on there into 12 parts and maybe um, stretch them out a little bit or divide them up just a couple, uh, maybe like one more episode and throw the missing pieces in there. Um, so this will be a massive podcast undertaking. Uh, daily episodes of like, you know, some of them are shortish, like a half hour or so, but a lot of them are like over an hour or longer. So that for sure is scheduled for May 2022 because that's the 30th anniversary of Firewalk with me. And then following that, I'm going to have season three episodes uh, coming out on the fifth anniversary for those because those came out in 2017. So season three would run through the summer of 2022 and wrap up around Labor Day when that finale aired five years earlier. Then from there, it'll get tricky. So if I'd already covered season two's uh, first arc, I would just pick up where I left off um, either in September or if it takes a few months to prepare coming back in like early 2023 or something. Um, if I didn't get to season two, then I would probably start season two and run those episodes roughly on the anniversaries of when they aired, um, you know, September through June or whatever. So we'll see. There's some ambiguity there. But if I hit those benchmarks of season two, then in March through May, then uh, when I come back in September to uh, continue season two, it will actually run through an end on February 24th, which is the day Twin Peaks begins on February 24th, 2023. So like over a year from now. So I'm hoping I can hit all that. That would be a nice kind of bookend to all of this, but we'll see. It's a lot of planning as, as 2021 showed you know, things get really overwhelming. You think you have a plan for something and it's always more complicated than you think. So we'll see. We'll leave you there. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting this podcast, my other work. Uh, you can find me on YouTube at Lost in the Movies. Um, you can find my website, lostinthemovies.com. You can support this podcast by rating, reviewing, subscribing on Apple Podcasts in particular. And uh, you can also become a patron on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. I'll see you in March or May of 2022. Happy New Year and see you then. Mm-hmm.